and welcome to episode 14 of season 4 of the KBB Review Podcast. I'm Andy Davis, of course, and this is the anti-penultimate episode of season 4, which, as I'm sure you all know, means it's third from last. That, of course, makes last week's episode the pre-anti-penultimate, and the one before that the pro-pre-anti-penultimate, but I didn't think you want to know that at the time. Great episode this week as we look beyond the kitchen and bathroom industry to a couple of big external factors that heavily influence it. And we're doing so by talking to a couple of Ians. I find Ians always make the best experts. Firstly, we're delving into what's going on in the retail market with top consultant Ian Scott. And then we're unlocking the front door of the property and mortgage market with Ian Swatton from mortgage switching site Dashley. Cost of living rises, interest rates, consumer confidence, inflation, online versus showroom remortgages and everything in between. All in this top episode. The first... Email is brilliant, isn't it? It's like actual mail, in that a lot of it is useless and goes straight in the bin. But every now and again, every Tuesday and Thursday morning, for example, you get something so packed full of interesting stuff that you have to open it and read it there and then. The KBB Review newsletter is just that. It has all the latest breaking kitchen and bathroom industry news, opinions, interviews, analysis, people and products carefully curated by our top editorial team. And it comes straight to your inbox for free. All you have to do to receive it is go to kbbreview.com and click on subscribe. Okay, so let's start with a look at the wider retail landscape now with the triumphant return to the podcast of top retail consultant Ian Scott. Hello, Ian. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? I'm very, very well. Thank you. Lovely sunny day. So look, where do we start here? Where do we start? Because there are so many things going on, so many things rocking the retail market at the moment. There's price rises, there's product availability, there's the cost of living, there's post-COVID bounce back, there's inflation, there's Ukraine. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, doesn't it? So I suppose the best place to begin is by asking you the broadest possible question of what is your assessment of where we are and what it all means for retailers. What are the short-term problems and what are the long-term trends? Certainly. Well, we, we're still in the tail of COVID and, um, you know, fingers crossed we're not going to have another nasty variant suddenly appear. But certainly in the UK, life seems to have settled back to freedom of movement and ability to do what we want. And we're starting to see now footfall is up. I read a report last week saying that footfall is at 90% of pre-COVID levels. So the physical retail side is is having some return to normality for want of a better phrase and we're seeing that online activity is sort of resettling back towards the growth curve it was on pre-covid as well so we're back to old normal i think some of the short-term challenges certainly supply chain is the biggest issue because if we can't get things into the space and on the shelf and on display then we can't sell them and that is a complicated thing with huge lockdowns in china affecting the ability to ship things out uh, obviously, supply chain issues around Ukraine and growing inflation. So we've, we've got a few things that are probably a nightmare, really, as we're coming out of the COVID challenges. We're now faced with another set of challenges around supply chain. So I think I think that's one of the biggest issues because brands and retailers will do as much as they can to put out a great proposition. But if they're out of stock, it all falls down. So I think that's probably the biggest single issue we've got. And then the cost of living is then squeezing with high inflation. So we're now facing the fact that people are starting to cut back on spending because they're worried about paying for fuel and and heating and and feeding their kids as well. I find that part of it very, very interesting because there's there's a lot of contradictions in all this, I, I, I think. You know, overall retail sales are sort of suffering a bit, but that isn't happening in all areas. You know, our sector, kitchens and bathrooms, big ticket items, investment in your home, 
sales anecdotally are staying very buoyant. And actually Howden's, I think just recently, its revenue went up by about 22% or something year on year, the first quarter. So look, what's going on? Is there a contradiction between what's considered discretionary spending and what is considered planned spending or, or luxury spending? I, yeah, I, I mean, I was fascinated. When lockdown came back, I thought everyone was going to batten down the hatches. But then there were stamp duty changes and suddenly everyone was moving house. And it really, I mean, I moved house two weeks before the first lockdown. So I got in just before. Um, but I was astonished that price, houses prices started to increase. I mean, I, I understood the principle of home improvement was starting to, to improve. People on furlough, they were at home. And I always joke there was that stereotypical sort of conversation where a wife saying to her husband, right, you're here at home, you're getting paid. You've been promising to paint that garden fence or redo the bathroom for years. You've got no excuse, you know. And I, and I think there was an element of that where we were seeing people starting to do things at home because they had the time and they were still earning, you know, the people that hadn't been made redundant. So, I, I, you know, the likes of B&Q and Homebase had big uplift in sales. I always felt the challenge was this is obviously COVID-driven. So how do you... How do you then take that and surprise and delight? You know, I, with my new house, I finally managed to get into a and q after queuing for an hour to buy paint. The paint category was decimated. And I thought, well, they would have had a lot of new customers coming in for that. And I wonder how many of them are going, oh, I didn't know you sold lampshades and rugs as well. You know, and I, I think what you found is certain, certain spaces were having new customers that they wouldn't have had at the time or may never have had. And what were they doing to surprise and delight them and keep them? And so you find the high ticket items, the expenditure was still happening as well. So kitchen and bathroom development were, you know, a step beyond painting the garden fence that I talked about. And so you you were finding people going, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm even though I'm offered on an 80% of my salary, I am, you know, my cost of living is, is with a lot of people had improved because they weren't having to commute. So suddenly they had disposable income and time to spend. And I think that's what happened, particularly in, you, in your world. People, people were given that opportunity. But the challenge is, how do you maximize those customers? You know, what else can you do to bring them back again? And, and I always felt that, that home improvement retailers missed a trick there because they had this upsurge in sales. So they had the revenue. It's not like they didn't have the money. They should have been investing heavily in promoting the other categories to push them towards people who are coming to buy paint or to buy taps for their their bathroom or something. And, and I think that's where a lot of them missed out because they, they didn't capitalise. And we're now seeing things dropping back to those levels. And everyone's coming out with, you know, a lot of people come out with figures, oh, our sales will drop 15%. And you go, well, no, they haven't. That's where they were before COVID for a lot of people. And this is what I mean by contradiction, because little car park is full. Mm. And yet there was still a massive queue around the block for the very premium coffee shop that opened up during lockdown at the end of my road. Yeah. Whether this is a lag effect from from the cost of living crisis, but I do think there is a, a barrier in people's heads between what they see as essential spend, as in fuel, food, and what they see as a treat. They still want to treat themselves. Yeah, I think I think also when things are tight, you tend to find that the value end thrives and the luxury end thrives. It's the middle ground that suffers. We've seen a lot of that. The likes of Debenhams went, although I think, to be fair, they were teetering on the edge anyway, but Selfridges is flourishing. And that's because... People at the higher end, you know, can can sort of cope with things more. And there may be a sense of rewarding themselves while it's hard. And they're, they're fortunate to have the funds to indulge themselves. And obviously, a lot of people in the middle are driving down towards the value end, save money. So that, that's my feeling. And I think that's often reflected in most categories in a situation like this. 
Let's touch a little bit on online. You mentioned it earlier, but I'm wondering what conclusions we can draw about that. You were saying that effectively online isn't dropping, it's just going back to normal levels. Well, yeah, online was growing. I saw a chart on LinkedIn uh, the other day and it, and it absolutely confirmed my thoughts on it in that online is still growing. It's not found its natural level. It's not reached its sort of saturation point yet. And, and I saw a chart where you were plotting this growth over the last five years and it was projecting where it would be in the next five years and you have this blip up with covid and you you, you then saw the line starting to re- return towards where it would have been on its natural growth level so so a lot of people aren't saying that online is down they're saying the growth of online is slowing um and so it's still growing but it's not as fast as it was for the last two years and my thought was well that's blindingly obvious you know you don't need to be a retail expert or a researcher to understand this is human nature all the shops were shut. We had to go online. So it was inevitable there was a growth. Now, a lot of those people would be exposed to online uh, and they found it useful. Some people found it a pain. Like, you know, anyone trying to book a delivery slot for Tesco's 18 months ago would tell you that online grocery shopping is not much fun because there was a saturation point. So, so yeah, I, I, online is still growing and it's still a place to grow and different categories will find their natural levels. But what we also saw was during lockdown, we we started to appreciate that humans are social creatures. We were denied going to a shop, a restaurant, a cinema, uh, going on holiday. And we realized that within our DNA, we're social creatures. And that's why I've always you know, supported the fact that humans will like to do physical shopping because it's a social activity. I mean, let's face it, you know, why go to a restaurant? You can save a fortune if you eat at home all the time. You know, the appeal is not the cost of the food. It's the social interaction with the people you go to eat with. And, and that's a great example of why physical has a place. So what we're seeing now is footfall on the high street is at 90 percent of the level it was pre-COVID. So, again, there's a there's a return to normal. You know, there is no new normal, you know, and, and, and behavioral psychology. And that's an absolute fallacy. You know, we, we were forced through legislation and fear to change what we're doing temporarily. That's not a new normal. It's a forced temporary change. And we're now seeing a lot of that reversion back to to where things were before. And online's the same. So online is growing and, and it is a huge important part. You know, I love physical spaces. I'm an advocate for them, but not at the exclusion of online. We all have a phone in our hands. And we're seeing now, you know, like in your world, I'd imagine that a lot of your customers may have multiple visits to the physical space. You may go along to, and I liken it to a car. I think the car industry used to recognize three trips to a showroom. You know, one of them was to go and sit in the car and press the buttons and get a brochure. Second one was a test drive. And the third one was to, to buy or collect the car. So you understand that the, the physical space plays a role and it's very, very much supported by online. So you may go into a showroom to have a look. And likewise, in your world, you know, open open the fridge doors and press the buttons and pull out the drawers. There may be then going home and research and comparison, and then maybe a return visit to place an order. You know, and in which in which case you understand that the two channels work hand in hand. And I call it symbiotic retail. It's not omni-channel. Omni-channel is diff- different routes. The symbiosis is that they work together. So you will find that the showroom will drive online activity. So the, it's, the showroom may not be about placing an order. It may be about touching and feeling. And then the online might be the order. And if the customer wants to do it that way, they have to work hand in hand so the customer can choose how they do it. Gone are the days where you can con and guide customers 
to your convenience. They, they won't have it. There are too many options for them to go elsewhere. Well, speaking of that, your wheelhouse really is experiential retailing. Showrooms where the experience of going there is as much about the purchase itself. And, you know, this is something this sector is very familiar with. Obviously, you get some very spectacular kitchen and bathroom showrooms. But I'm just wondering whether that becomes more important as sales are being squeezed. You know, did you have to make that much more effort now to push the consumer over the line? Um, I think you do, um, but the showroom's only part of that. I think you need to create that awareness outside of the showroom, and that's more and more important now. People are seeing house renovation shows on telly, they're you know, reading magazines. There's all sorts of social media where you can be surprised and inspired by wonderful ideas. And so it's it, a, lot of, a lot of this awareness and engagement happens outside the showroom these days so the showroom has to complement that uh, and it's back to that surprise and delight I was talking about my instinct with kitchen and bathroom showrooms they're wonderful places to be and immersive but I I I can't help feeling there needs to be a next step I I have no idea what that answer is and if it was I wouldn't give it away for free on your podcast but but you know there's there's a need to you know I'm like okay so what next and I'm feeling that with a lot of retail as well you know super dry opened a a global flagship on Oxford Street and their CEO called it the most innovative shop on Oxford Street. And I was like, man, I need to come and check this out. And I was massively disappointed because it was an old super dry shop with lots of signs about sustainability and two escalators that both went up so you couldn't get down from the upstairs. And I was like, no, that's not, you know, so I was expecting more. And and I think it it applies in many ways to, to kitchens, bedrooms and bathrooms as well. It's like, how can you create that space and move it on a bit? You know, in, in retail, we have um, a brand called Situ Live who've opened an amazing showroom in Westfield, White City, where it's uh, a brand display center for online sales. And they have um, actors and performers as staff and they build sets. And, and you know, I, I was there a couple of weeks ago and I lay on this bed that moved up and down and, and support my back while the person next to me, which was a scary Canadian retail expert, he kept cuddling me, which put me off a bit. But, you know, we were lying in this bed doing amazing things, watching a 4K projector on the wall, and I was shouting at the alarm clock so Alexa would set the alarm. And I was, like, immersed in the world. So it's more than just building a few walls and sticking some units up against them. You were just in that space. And I'm thinking, how can those sort of experiences potentially move into um, bedroom and bathrooms? I said I wasn't going to give it away for free, and I just have, haven't I? I'm an idiot. (laughs) Not the details. That's the important (laughs) bit. The money's all in the details, Ian, as you well know. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think uh, we're at a stage, aren't we, where you know everyone starts looking for what's next and what's new. I mean, look, if it ain't broke, don't fix it up to a point. Yeah. But you always have to surprise and delight people, as you say. So, look, here's the big question to round this off. Given your view of the market, given your understanding of the market as it is, if I was an independent retailer of kitchens and bathrooms, should I be worried or should I be excited? I would be excited because there's been this disruption, which means that it's not a reset, but there are opportunities to re-engage in different ways. And I, I've always felt that. I, you know, I've, I said when COVID hit that as an outsider, this is going to be the most exciting five years in retail for a long time. Not so exciting for a legacy retailer with long leases and 500 stores, maybe. But you look at the industry and you see how the proactive brands pivoted and responded. You know, Nike adjusted the whole strategy overnight. They launched two new store concepts in the middle of COVID. They ramped up their social media. They, they spun. And, and a lot of people say to me, oh, well, that's Nike. It's all right for them. They're, they're a global brand with a big budget. And I go, you're missing the point. It's the principle of how you do it and you can scale it to suit. And it's like, you you need to understand how your customers want to find you 
engage with you and buy from you. And that is your sense check. Once you understand that, you work back and every new idea you come up with, you, you then turn around and go, will it help them find us, buy us, engage, engage with us? If it does, then explore. If it doesn't, then start again. So that understanding of your customer is the primary point. And then you can push boundaries and try different things. So I would say, yes, it is. You know, we, we've been exposed to home improvement. There's been an up, uplift in, in, in property activity, partially funded by the stamp duty thing. But there's a momentum and people are still spending, as you were saying, some of the, the traders in your sector are still registering uplifting sales. There is activity. And if there's activity, there's revenue to fund the changes as well. So, yeah, I would say it'd be very exciting. Well, Ian, thank you so much. I think we've solved it all. <laughs> all the answers are there for free. Yes. But as always, thank you so much for your time. We'll get back to you in a few months and we'll see if you're right. Thank you very much, Andrew. So let's talk property now, as promised. And welcome back to the podcast, Ian Swatton from mortgage switching platform Dashley. Hello, Ian. Hello, Andrew. How are you? I'm very good, sir. Welcome back. It's been about a year since you were last on, so it seems a good time to catch up. For those that didn't hear you the first time around, Ian, let's establish your credentials. Give us a 10-second overview of Dashley and what it does. So Dashley is an always-on mortgage platform that uses some sort of very advanced algorithms to check your mortgage against probably nearly 10,000 other products that are out there with 100 or so different lenders every day. And it's able to find a better deal which could potentially save you considerable amounts of money wherever you are in your mortgage journey. So whether you've just taken out your mortgage or whether you're five years into it, wherever. Look, let's start here with your view on the slightly mad housing market as it stands at the moment and its current health. Because, well, I'm calling it mad because it's not mad, if you know what I mean. Yes. The housing market, is it mad? It's probably lagging behind the headlines or the current headlines, which is cost of living crisis and the war in the Ukraine and I suppose all the negative press that sits around there because we are still seeing positive house price growth. Some of the April numbers show that there are still in positive territory for would-be buyers, people looking to buy property. Our house price is remaining positive, and mainly because of a lack of stock and a lack of listings. So still positive growth uh, in 2022, but with headwinds, things like interest rate increases, and we'll probably talk a bit later on about where are they going, and also affordability in terms of where lenders are prepared to lend money with people having their outgoings increasing. Lenders are very much looking at whether or not people can still afford mortgages with inflated house prices and increased interest rates. So lots of headwinds there, but still buoyant as things remain. That's the interesting thing about it, isn't it? I think the cost of living crisis has come on us quite quickly. We haven't sort of built up to it. It just also sort of seemed to happen overnight almost. And what you're saying is the property market isn't necessarily sheltered from that reality. It's just lagging behind it. That's correct. Yes, absolutely. So people are starting to see an increase in their outgoings, but they're not necessarily seeing an increase in their mortgage if they're on a fixed rate currently. But if they're coming off their fixed mortgage and maybe having to look to refinance or into another deal, those rates are more expensive today than they were a year or so ago. But it is interesting, isn't it, that while the the property market, the housing market, the moving market is so affected by obviously the money in people's pockets and the cost of living, this odd idea of demand still outstripping supply to such an extent that that seems to keep the market just chugging along and on this ever upwards graph. Indeed. It was interesting. Government said a pledge a while ago in terms of building 300,000 homes per year by 2025. And it's unlikely to achieve that. I think some of the senior commentators are saying, well, actually, we're not likely to get to 300,000 being built. I think the last high water was about 250,000 properties being built in a year. 
And so therefore, if you don't bring enough supply, you're always going to have that shortfall of uh, properties for people to move into. Exacerbated with that, you have sort of supply chain issues and, and cost of materials increasing and all this sort of thing, which is just sort of not enabling the, the scaling up of available properties. So all the things come together to create a demand for property and there is and, and therefore it it keeps prices at a uh, I'm not going to say artificially high level, but at a higher level than maybe they would have been in other times when we, we had recessions and higher interest rates. But I suppose there must come a tipping point, mustn't there, he says, but I would have said that five years ago as well, that comes a point when people just can't afford to buy a basic home, so therefore the prices have to at least slow down. I, I think that's probably the, the, the word, uh, the right words to use, is that prices will slow down or soften rather than necessarily fall. They, they may see a correction. I think there are some commentators out there that are predicting a correction in prices, I, a drop. I, I, I'm not so sure I, I see that necessarily. Lenders will continue to look at innovative ways to lend money because that's, that's what they need to do is, as, as much as they can make it harder for people to borrow equally uh, because of increases in, in, in outgoings and that sort of thing. Equally, they still need to lend money. That's how they make their money. So we saw nationwide for example, increasing their income to multiples up to six and a half times for remortgages, that is, but uh, not to say purchase. But it wasn't so many years ago when there was lots of aspiration moving from three and a half to four times income. And now you've got a lender, a mainstream lender saying actually we'll end up to six and a half times. So they're always looking for ways to lend. And that, in a way, is, is how the market will continue to go. Whilst lenders are in, looking to increase what they lend, it potentially means that those increased uh, house prices remain I'm not going to say affordable, but within the reach of some. Yeah, but you know, we had the big crash in the in 2008. So this was very much caused by people just overborrowing themselves. It was called the credit crunch back then. We're not in danger of that again, are we? I don't believe we are. And I think we have to put things into perspective. We've seen interest rates increase from historic lows a year or so ago, where you could borrow money at less than 1%. And we're seeing interest rates now at two, two and a half percent, that sort of that sort of figure. So one could say, and quite quite justifiably, that is one hell of an increase from 0.89 to two and a half percent. But two and a half percent is still a very low interest rate. It is still a low low level of interest on a loan and is nowhere near the highs that it was back in 2008, 2009, that sort of time. So there, there, there are things that are, are different in this situation. But I do think we have to proceed with caution. And I think that, that very much the lenders will not will want to avoid what happened back at the Great Crunch time and, and, and have really strong measures in place. So I think what you will see is it'll be harder for you to get a loan compared to what it was back in, uh, back in that, that, those times. So the stress tests, et cetera, that people will need to go through to get that mortgage will be, will be tighter. So therefore, the likelihood of, of default is less. Equally, in terms of house prices, let's say, dropping significantly, the, the fundamental issues that we have regarding supply and demand aren't going to go away tomorrow. You've equally got the, the challenge that if you want to rent a property, rental prices are also increasing. So whichever way you want to look, actually, your outgoing in terms of housing is increasing. But mortgages are still cheaper than renting, so there is still the attraction for people to want to buy. And if the incomes are there and it's affordable, then that's absolutely fine. I think the challenge we have, though, and it's a challenge we've had for a long time, is that the opportunity for, for some to get a mortgage today is diminishing. So if your income is not going up and house prices are increasing at a, an unsustainable level, then the gap between those that can and those that can't will just widen. 
Well, which brings us on very neatly to something which is just as important to moving house to the kitchen and bathroom market, and that is, of course, remortgages. Yeah. Borrowing extra on top of your mortgage or releasing some of that equity in there to, to pay for a, a refurbishment. What's happening there? I'm assuming interest rates will hit home there as you, just as you described them. Yeah, absolutely. So there's ways to measure this. Uh, and I don't know if you recall, Andrew, but we live in Beckenham. Uh, we both live in Beckenham. I'm assuming you've not moved in the last year. I have not. Can't afford it. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Beckenham's a nice place to live. But I, I always call it the skip test. I measure the number of skips on people's driveways or outside people's houses as to how much work has been done on their property. So are they having a new kitchen? Are they having a new bathroom? And I have to say, if you drive around Leafy Beckenham, um, the number of skips that are out there is at an all-time high. You've forever seen the new skip going outside the house. And that is a really good measure to say, well, actually, people are spending money on their homes. Whether it's the kitchen, bathroom or other things, doesn't really matter. But it means that people are investing in their homes. And that doesn't seem to be diminishing. With increased house prices comes increased increased equity. And even with an increase in interest rates uh, on your mortgage, let's say for um, you know, 2.5%, 3%, if that's what you're paying, that is still a very cheap place, a cheap way of borrowing money to, to invest in your home. So uh, I don't think the appetite for people in terms of wanting to improve their homes is necessarily diminishing. Equally, if the equity was in, is in your home and house prices have increased a huge amount in the last few years, and as you've just said, they don't really seem to show much sign of abating, although it might slow down. There is equity in people's homes that they can release at a very affordable rate to invest in their property and for kitchens and bathrooms. I think that's that's a, got to be a positive message for, for, your, for your listeners at least. Yeah, it is. And I guess it is a way of alleviating sort of, you know, an increase in immediate cost of living to know that there is a chunk of money sat there that actually when you spread it out over 25 years, it's not going to put an enormous strain on your income and your outgoings. Absolutely. So whenever somebody is taking out a mortgage uh, or in, taking out additional funds to pay for additional works, they obviously do need to take into consideration what that increased borrowing is going to be, what it's going to cost them, the impact on their, on their lives, on their cost of living. And lenders very much do that too. So when we talked about earlier on around, I suppose, some of the headwinds, and there are headwinds out there, the, the increase in interest rates over the last year or so has probably put on a light for light. It's probably on a £150,000 mortgage, for example, has probably increased someone's outgoings uh, by about £100 a month, about £1,200 a year from where it was a year or so ago. So what we are definitely seeing is people are having to pay more for their mortgages right now. However, and, and with that, there is a real sense now that people want to secure their lending, their rates, for example, for, for the longer term. So as long as you've done your, your maths, as long as you've sat down and worked out what is affordable for me, it's very possible that you can fix your mortgage for five years, 10-year rates now. So that at least then you have that level of certainty that you may have taken on some, some increased borrowing, but at least you know what your outgoings are going to be. They're, they're going to be there for pretty set for the next five or 10 years on money that in reality is still relatively cheap in compared to where it was, let's say, back in the 2008-2009, albeit it is, it is more expensive than it was a year or so ago. And I guess as well, there's always that argument that a new kitchen, a new bathroom, an extension, a loft conversion, whatever it is, it's behind all this, adds value to the home at a time when the value of that home still keeps increasing. Indeed it does. One of the realities is that uh, if you put another room on your in your house, you put a loft extension, whatever, then you're adding more space into your home. That makes it more attractive and that's going to have a positive impact on, on your property. And things like a, a new bathroom, a new kitchen, 
quite sometimes it's difficult sometimes to say well how much value is it going to add it depends obviously what you're putting in but it's going to make your property more valuable to have an up-to-date kitchen have an up-to-date uh, bathroom and lenders are quite happy to lend on that basis the fact that if you release an equity for home improvements they know it's going to be adding value to that property so as long as you've got sufficient equity there isn't much risk or downside for the lender because you are investing in the asset that they've got that, that security against so so it's 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 not something that lenders would be. They'd be far more concerned if you were taking money out of your property to pay off a credit card or to pay off your car. They 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 don't like that. But to invest in your home, actually, they're pretty pretty good about that. Well, that's all the good news, Ian. <laughs> now let's talk about those headwinds that you were talking about there. You know, what what are your predictions for the for, for the year ahead? What is going to come down the line, and when do you think it's going to start really biting? You know, that's a really good question. When's it really going to start biting? Because there is lots of talk in the press regarding cost of living and people not being able to afford heating and eating, which is obviously very sad. But I think that um, there are those that are impacted by it now and there are those that aren't impacted by it right now. And, and, and so I think potentially the real impact of the cost of living crisis is likely to hit more people towards the end of this year as, as they really start to see things like their energy bills starting to increase significantly. So we've had one round of increases. We've had a, a mobile light to see um, energy bills increase significantly in October of this year. And I think that in itself is going to be a bit of a shock. Uh, lenders are starting to price that in now. Lenders are starting to think, OK, so affordability around products is, is going to be impacted, not just now, but over the, the medium term there. I think there is a prediction that house sale numbers will slow this year in compared to where they were previously. There are some realities behind that. We don't have the government incentives around stamp duty and that sort of thing. So we're probably going back to a bit more of a norm, uh, normal market from where we were previously. And whether there's a price correction or not, the supply and demand issues that we talked about earlier on are still there. So I still think that uh, people will be moving. However, I think the headwinds that are there with, with potential rate increases will motivate people to do something about their finances now. And we are already seeing that. So we're seeing people looking maybe to to switch from one rate to another whilst they're still locked into it because they see actually they'd rather lock themselves into a, uh, an interest rate that seems lower now potentially on the on the basis that the risk of the rates will be higher in a year's time when they maybe come off their deal and and i suppose the other uh, i suppose negative thing we need to consider is that whilst people have locked themselves into interest rates over the last couple of years or so those rates were were at low levels and when they come off those rates and look to secure themselves into new rates, uh, those rates are going to be higher. So there's potential increase in their outgoings that aren't necessarily being factored in. And and the government, I think, are very aware of that, that people are shielded. To, so if you have a mortgage, you, you are shielded if you're in a, in a fixed rate for a period of time from any increase, from, from any interest rate increase. But it's when you come off those deals where you're potentially going to see that. And I think we haven't re- really yet seen that in terms of the, the mortgage borrower. That being said, there is lots of innovation going on right now. We have a, a, a very much a, a green agenda, the drive to make properties far more energy efficient. And the only way you're going to do that is by investing in your property. And, in, and we've sort of talked about a little bit about that in terms of a loft extension, a loft or a kitchen or bathroom. But very much the government is, 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 is wants to push and press ahead with the green agenda. And I think what we will see um, over this year, probably the next couple, two or three years, is far more innovative mortgage products to encourage people to invest in their properties, particularly around energy efficiency and that sort of thing. And that will probably or primarily from a lending point of view, that be done through through the lenders, encouraging people or incentivizing people to to invest their properties. So if you're living in a an EPC 
E-type rated property, for example, how do you get that down to an EPC uh, C rating? It might be Windows, it might be whatever it is, but you maybe need to encourage or incentivize people to do that, and you can do that through lending. So I think we'll see over the next couple of years or so a real drive in encouraging people to invest in their homes to improve energy, energy efficiency. And that in itself may stimulate, well, it will stimulate the sort of home improvements and, and the demand for different um, products, et cetera, to achieve that. Although it does mean that kitchen and bathroom market might be very much competing with windows, solar panels, et cetera, et cetera, for that money a little bit. But I suppose a refurb project tends to be triggered quite a lot of things happening at once, doesn't it, as opposed to one area to attack? Uh, I, I agree. I'm, I'm not an expert in those sort of things. But if you're going to invest in one thing, you tend to wrap it all into other things as well. So if you're going to invest in, in windows, you might as well invest in some other parts of your, your property as well. So, so yes. It's really interesting, isn't it, to, to see what's going to happen next because everyone will be so desperate to avoid any crashes, of course. We really don't know whether these cost-of-living factors are short, medium, or long-term. If, you know, we don't know how long things are going to happen in Ukraine for or yeah. you know, product shortages or anything else. There's really no way of knowing, so it's all so unpredictable, which must make it very annoying when I come to people like you and ask you to predict it. Yeah, It's going to be so interesting to see what happens. So, look, Ian, thank you so much for your help and thanks so much for your time. As always, this is one of the biggest areas of influence on our market, so it's always good to get some expertise in here. So thank you. We'll catch up again soon. Excellent. Thank you very much. That was Ian Swatton from Dashley, and before him, retail consultant Ian Scott. Huge thanks to them, and see, I told you, if you want an expert, ask an Ian. And it was all so interesting, wasn't it? Especially as so much of it is about whether short-term issues will turn into long-term trends. The KBB industry has actually been very robust during the whole COVID years, as we know. But is it our turn for a wobble? Who knows? Watch this space and, of course, your KVB Review email newsletter. Don't forget, you can make sure it comes to your inbox every Tuesday and Thursday morning by going to kbbreview.com forward slash subscribe. I'll see you next week.